It is no coincidence that the Exodus story keeps coming back into view as fodder for preaching during this strange year that we've been living in. Just to catch you up, this morning's reading happens when the, after the Israelites have been freed uh, from captivity and slavery in Egypt, and they're wandering around in the wilderness. That's the biblical word for it, the wilderness. What it means is simply desert. The wilderness always refers to a place where biological life is, uh, it cannot be sustained, where human life, in fact, cannot be sustained, where other sources of, 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 of encouragement or just growth dry up. And indeed, at the opening of this particular passage, the Israelites are starving. They are starving. They are hungry. Their response to their appetites is, is to grumble and complain. Those are the words that we hear. Depending on your translation, you might hear one or the other. But they grumble and they complain. And not only that, what they do or the form that this grumbling takes is a strangely nostalgic form. What they say is that if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. The flesh pots, that's simply actually a word for basically what was a Dutch oven. But they're saying that they, they're longing for this, this time when they were in Egypt, this terrible time when they were enslaved. They were actually slaves. It was the worst time in their history. They hated it while they were there. And yet here they are, longing for the flesh pots of Egypt. Now, I hope you can see yourself in this story, at least thus far. Because quarantine, COVID, 2020, has been something of a global wilderness period. It's been a time when many of the things we've relied upon for life and sustenance and emotional, um, you know, uh, kind of health have dried up. It's a time when we've found ourselves complaining a lot and grumbling, resentful about where we are and where we sort of find ourselves, which is not really where we thought we'd be. Many of us, like the Israelites, have, have fantasized about the past. Even if the past, it may not have been slavery, it may have just been 2019. It may have been 2016. It may have been 2002. But we start to think about, if, if only it was still there. You know, uh, it, it probably wasn't as good as I thought it was at the time, or as I think it is now, but it would be nice to go back to the old ways. Now, the psychological term for this is emotional repetition compulsion. And this is usually a term used to describe people that would rather um, revert to the familiarity of uh, an unhealthy relationship or a bad job rather than face uncertainty. It's often used when it comes to abuse, in fact. And this kind of regression, this sort of nostalgia, is very tempting during COVID, when the future continues to seem very opaque, opaque at best. We long to return to the flesh pots of Egypt. Now, I know firsthand nostalgia is a very powerful drug. If you've ever been to my office, 
uh, or if you've joined in on one of the, the new classes that we're doing on the Holy Spirit, you've seen that I'm surrounded by action figures and trinkets from my past. I, I, I love nostalgia. I seem to want to surround myself with, with the belongings that conjure up a world of uh, yesteryear. And yet I was so... Um, I was taken aback recently. I, I pulled a journal off the shelf uh, to sort of really to check in with the time that I had personally begun to kind of think about and reprocess and possibly even fantasize about. It was, uh, you know, the time, the post-college years for uh, w- when you're no longer under that sort of obligation of pet tests and term papers, and yet you haven't quite entered the world of adult responsibility. There's a, it's a, it's a period for many people of uh, enormous freedom, excitement, possibility, romance, whatever you want to call it. So I decided, you know, rather than just pine for this time, why don't I see what I was actually thinking? And so I was one of these young men who kept a journal, and I read it, and I almost had to put it down immediately because it was so full of insecurity. It was just dripping with a person who was unsure of himself who may have had all of these opportunities but couldn't seem to enjoy them without second-guessing himself. And it was one of those cringe-worthy experiences, like, no thank you. Perhaps I should think twice about what that period of time was actually like. Now, maybe you fantasize about a time in our, in our nation's history. Maybe you are thinking about a time, your own childhood. Or maybe you're thinking simply, again, about... 2015, when you had that job or your children were that age. I don't know what it is, but I know it's powerful. And it doesn't mean that good things weren't happening, but it means that we have a tendency, like the Israelites, to long for those flesh pots of Egypt. Now, the second thing to mention here is that when you're in the wilderness period, when you're in the wilderness, it's easy to forget how you got there. We're, uh, you can look at, you can do contact tracing, and you can look at the science, and you can analyze global, uh, you know, historical, political patterns, and you can unpack what on earth, and read every think piece under the sun to figure out how it is we got to this place that we're living in right now. But if you're an Israelite in Exodus, well, you know exactly how you got there. God led you there. In no uncertain terms, God took you by the hand and brought you out of Egypt and plopped you down in the desert. That's why they're in that difficult and uncomfortable place, because God himself has put them there. Well, why does God do this? Why did God do it then? Why does he do it now? There's no way to comprehensively answer that question, but I will say this. Wilderness training is not just for people in Colorado. We all need wilderness training. The dry periods of our life, the desert times, are those same times when liberation in principle becomes liberation in practice. These difficult periods are where we gain substance, stability, charity, and purpose. When you learn things in the valley that you cannot learn anywhere other than that. You cannot learn them on the mountaintop. Your other brooks, the other brooks, the the other rivers need to dry up before you can learn 
that particular lesson. And if you know someone who's been through many, more than their share of wilderness periods, you know that what has shaped their character is not their fortune, but their misfortune. And in fact, they have come possibly to see that misfortune not as good, but as certainly formative and perhaps even a gift. The great lesson that the Israelites learned is the lesson that many of us have learned over the last six months to a year. You don't realize God is all you need until God is all you have. You don't realize God is all you need until God is all you have. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, how does God respond to their grumbling and complaining? It's spelled out in the passage. God does not smack them down. He does not castigate them or discipline them even. He provides for them. He does not eviscerate this miserable people. He feeds them. He feeds them by sending them bread and quail. He does it in a funny way. He sends it to them every day. He, he, the, the bread that kind of comes on the ground, which we call manna, it, is, um, it goes bad after a single day. So if you don't eat it that day, uh, you're gonna, you, it's going to rot. And so you have to go back to the well again and again and again. It seems a little inefficient, doesn't it? I mean, why, why not once a week? Why not like a quarterly supply drop like they used to have in that show Lost? Well, I think this is what God is after in the Israelites, and I think it's what he's after in us. He wants to cultivate a moment-to-moment dependent relationship. You see, Jesus, this story was very important to Christ himself, who in the, the Lord's Prayer even asks, give us this day our daily bread. This is what he's referring to. He's talking about looking to God on a moment-to-moment basis for life itself. Because that's what you need in the wilderness. You don't need more supplies. You need God. And yet, you'll also note that there's a test involved. A test involved. God says, each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So every day it's enough for one day, except for on the sixth day where you get enough for two days. Now this is prefiguring the Sabbath. They've yet to actually receive the law of God and hear about um, the Sabbath, but this is what God is doing. He He's reminding them that they're no longer slaves. They're no longer in Egypt. They don't have to work on that seventh day. They don't even have to go out and gather bread. Of course, in verse 27, we find out how they bear on the test Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. They fail that particular test. Perhaps the psychology of slavery, the psychology of fear and of sort of nonstop grinding uh, is harder to root out than by just transporting someone, sort of waving a magic wand. It might even take time. It might possibly even take 40 years of time to 
to, what do they say, you can take the person out of slavery, but it's a lot more difficult to take the slave out of the person. But there's this test, and they fail. Now, test, that word, I think, uh, at least it, it rings true to me. I mean, do you feel like 2020 has been a test? This is often how it's framed. You say, America was not ready for this. We have failed the test. New Zealand, Hong Kong, they've passed with flying colors. America, not so much. Don't even look at Great Britain because those guys are even further down on the curve. But don't think about it so much macro-wise. Think about it yourself. Uh, How have you fared in the test of 2020. Perhaps you were killing it. You were doing great for the first three months of this thing. But then the last three months have just been, just been brutal. Maybe you stayed healthy for the first period. And then finally, last week, you contracted the virus. Or maybe you, had, you were making ends meet, and then finally, though, you lost your job. Maybe you've simply failed to adapt successfully to the new normal, at least as well as the people that you see on Instagram. Maybe you're one of the the many folks who've experienced a significant uptick in anxiety, depression, and sleeplessness. Or maybe like the Israelites, you you cannot seem to stop daydreaming about a past that never really existed. Well, what is God's response to their failed to their failure, to their, you know, direct disobedience. Well, it's not the response of an administrator who says three strikes and you're out. It's not the response of a, of, of, of a, of a governor or a, someone in sort of political authority or a policeman. It's the response of a parent. You see, parents give tests sometimes. They need to know that their child knows the family phone number or the address. They need to know that before I allow you to use the the power saw, you you know what you're doing. But a parent's tests are different than a professor's test. You see, if your child fails something you're testing them on, you, you don't throw them out of the house. You say, we'll try again tomorrow. And in fact, the more your child fails at the same thing, the more your heart breaks, the more your heart goes out to that child. It's not a tit-for-tat thing. It's a loving relationship, and that is how God treats the Israelites. Because the truth is, you know, they never get what they deserve. God continues to work with them and for them day in, day out. In fact, for 40 years, he continues to feed them with daily bread. And... What the Israelites learn is that day by day, the wilderness isn't forever. There is an end. God has a plan, and they are in his hands. And indeed, this is, you know, a story that Christ, you know, not only mentions in, in, his, in his Lord's prayer, but he, he, we're to be reminded of it himself when he, after his baptism, is taken directly into where? The wilderness, where he is tempted himself, where he does not grumble, though, where, in fact, he passes the test, the test that the devil poses. And one of the things he says to the devil, he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes, in fact, Uh, referring to this exact story, he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, this 
is where we put our faith, the man who succeeds where we fail, who succeeds for us who fail. You know, recently I was asked a question that um, I hadn't been asked for a long time, and that question was, when did you become a Christian, Dave? One of the cute answers that I used to give would, would say, well, it was 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. Thanks a lot. Um, you could also say, well, I, I became a Christian the moment that my head was, uh, you know, that I was, the water went on my head in baptism. And those are accurate answers as far as it goes, but the actual answer of when I personally became a Christian has to do with a, a breakdown and a heartache in my personal life about 20 years ago, which was a time, it was a wilderness time. It wasn't the first and it wasn't the last, but it was a wilderness period of extreme uh, intensity, uh, a time when God's provision became experiential and not just intellectual. Now, those emotions, uh, to be asked this question was to revisit those emotions, which are so big, and it kind of still so big, that to revisit them almost feels sadistic, and yet no less than the Apostle Paul seems to constantly revisit his conversion to make sense of his trajectory in life, his forward movement. And this is where the tension lies for the Christian when it comes to nostalgia. You see, our hope for the future is rooted in the past not just in the Exodus story, but in the Christ, his, his actual um, provision for us on the cross, the pouring out not of his, of, his, of his water, but of his blood, the breaking of his body, which we commemorate in the Eucharist. Christian future is rooted in the, in the past, both our personal past and the global historical one because it is rooted in Jesus Christ himself, the true bread who came down from heaven. And yet that hope is not a hope that leaves us in the past, because the hope of the resurrection propels us forward into a chapter full of goodness and of healing. I know this because I, God did not leave me in that wilderness. He did not leave the Israelites in that wilderness despite my and their regressive grumbling tendencies, despite the failing scores on the test of life. And he does not leave you there either. God is in the business we find out today of feeding and nourishing complaining needy people day after day, Sunday after Sunday, as we journey through our own wilderness until that day when we see him face to face and we simply say, thank you. Amen.